if you have listened to me long enough on this podcast, how is my financial health doc? You, I think, come to the realization that I really love to talk about two things mainly. One is real estate, and the other one is whole life insurance. So today we're going to talk about whole life insurance in particular, in particularly participating life insurance. And why am I doing this today? Because we've had many episodes on this particular topic, but we've never had a true expert like we have today. And so I hope that you enjoy this episode as we dig really, really deep into what a participating life insurance is about. How is it created? How is it structured? How is it funded? How does it benefit the policy holder? And what does it really do? And what does it really invest in? So we're going to go into deep detail of that because we're going to be talking to some insider. So that insider is Banasha. I hope you guys enjoy this and I hope that you will understand more participating life. As long as you pay the annual premium, those are completely guaranteed. And that means if let's say tomorrow, the company said, we're never paying dividends again, or we can't pay dividends, you still have those contractual values in your contract. It, it may be too expensive for some people when they really need a much higher amount of coverage and should be looking at term. Um, I would also not recommend it where someone is not sure that they can commit to the premium going forward. But the other reason that par whole life is more expensive than other types of permanent insurance is that we anticipate that we are going to pay a dividend every year in the future. Okay, so that is actually priced into the plan at the beginning. So that large whole life premium you're paying includes the future dividends. How's my financial health doc? Welcome to the Financial Literacy Podcast for Healthcare Professionals, where financial security and wealth topics are not a taboo. Okay, well, welcome back, everybody, to How Is My Financial Health Doc podcast, and I'm your host, Vuketran. Today, it is a great pleasure of mine to introduce and to speak with Banasha. I think her the full name is Banasha Shah, but the, she will she will introduce herself. And um, this is this is a turning point a little bit in our podcast history because, as you guys know, I've always invited. You know, advisors and financial planners. But uh, I bumped into Banasha uh, on LinkedIn, and uh, we started chatting. And I found this very interesting, and I found her background very interesting. So Banasha is an actuary, uh, but she will tell us a little bit about more about herself. So Banasha, please uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Vu. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. I'm look, really looking forward to this conversation. But Nasha, I didn't really do a really good job introducing you. So I hope you will do a better job than I did. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure thing. Um, so I am an actuary by training. I've spent the majority of my career um, as a life insurance uh, pricing and product development actuary. So um, the first part of my career, I uh, literally priced and designed life insurance, disability, and critical illness plans for a major insurance company. So I was the head of product development and pricing and marketing um, at that time. Uh, I then went on to become an independent consultant. So I've worked for many of the insurance companies in Canada uh, doing the same thing, product development, pricing, and design. Um, And then about 15 years ago, I became very interested 
and curious about, um, you know, what type of experience do Canadian consumers have uh, with life insurance, uh, health insurance plans? How are they approached? How are they presented the product? What kind of advice do they get? So um, almost on a whim, another friend of mine who's an actuary and I, we decided to get our life insurance license just to see if we could you know, try to learn a little bit more and maybe promote some um, particularly critical illness plans at that time. Uh, and that 15 years ago, uh, I soon found myself um, spending the majority of my time advising clients because they came to me, they were very interested in my perspective as an actuary on what types of plans um, were most appropriate for them. So it's very interesting because you've gone from a actuary, uh, really scientific, really academic statistics and all, sort of nerdy, right? Totally. <laughs> sort of nerdy to now being on the front line uh, with your other insurance brokers. And that has been quite a shift. Now, in our discussion together, you mentioned something that really hit me. And you said that actuaries by, by profession, by training, are risk averse. And so I'm very interesting, you know, being that type of nature, type of profession and person, why did you choose insurance as a product, a service, a solution, an asset that you decided to jump into? Okay. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I guess I sort of stumbled into it. I mean, I, I really did not intend to change careers or become a, a broker or a salesperson. Um, quite honestly, I'm a terrible salesperson. Um, I've been told that. But what I do is I educate. So what I try to do is use my actuarial training and I educate clients. I educate them on all of the risks. And so I've become a bit of a financial planner, a financial coach to them as well. Um, I take a holistic approach to financial planning. And I think it's important that we look at all of the risks an individual faces in their lives. And the best way to reduce risk is to diversify. And diversification when it comes to um, financial perspective means trying to invest in as many different asset classes as possible. And life insurance is a separate asset class. So I don't know if that answers your question. It's a long way around, but that ultimately led me to advising clients on life insurance. And I think it does have a very solid place in, in most people's portfolios. No, I absolutely get it um, as a physician. And I think most physicians are also uh, conservative and risk averse. And so it does make sense that when you are that type of person and that's how your training is, that you gravitate towards a solution that is also a risk mitigation tool. And uh, I agree with you that, you know, diversification, the traditional word diversification uh, only applies to, or at least in the common lingo applies to diversify into your, your equities in your market, right? So buying securities, buying bonds, et cetera. But your definition of diversification and mine are very much aligned. We are diversifying in all sorts of assets. And insurance is just another good asset, in addition to being a very good product and solution for death benefit but in itself is a really good asset. So you and I look at asset diversification very much in the same way. And I think that's why we hit it off on, on LinkedIn uh, so, so quickly because we, we're like-minded. So now I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick your brain today and I'm gonna ask you to educate me and my audience because you know, with your actual background and you're actually the designer of all these products that we buy, on the other end, I think this is a great opportunity for us to kind of pick your brain. And so I really appreciate your time and uh, your, um, your education today, uh, Banasha. It's a pleasure. So since we're talking about insurance, we're going to dive a little bit into participating life and whole life insurance, and we're going to sort of decorticate and dissect it a little bit. When you and I have been talking, we said, well, you know what? Uh, these type of solutions are quite expensive. Uh, whole life uh, premiums are more than the premiums that one would pay for term life. 
And so this is common knowledge, but what's not common knowledge is why? <laughs> why is that? And so what is baked in into this premium, into this price? Help us understand that a little bit. Okay, sure. So the reason, I guess maybe I'll just step back and talk a little bit about how actuaries would price a life insurance plan, any life insurance plan. So when we try to come up with a price um, on a particular plan, okay, for a particular age and, and so on, just a rate per thousand, what we have to do is determine how are we going to be able to pay for all of the things that will arise in the future while that contract is in force? So what premium rate do we have to strike today so that all future claims can be paid, all future cash values for anyone who chooses to surrender will be paid out, all of the company's operating expenses will be covered, and any taxes that come up will also be paid. Um, so that's really, you know, it's, it's, it's actually a huge equation when you think about it. And those are unknowns in the future. We have to make assumptions as to when death claims will be paid. You know, whether policyholder behavior will mean that they we have people who choose to surrender their contract and take their cash value. But we have to put a price on that today um, so that we can project that in the future. Now, the reason whole life and par in particular is so expensive is that as long as someone holds this plan, you know, so there will be a death benefit in the future. Okay. And that is very different than term life insurance, which in most cases will terminate before a claim is paid. And that's why there's such a big differential there. But the other reason that par whole life is more expensive than other types of permanent insurance is that we anticipate that we are going to pay a dividend every year in the future. Okay, so that is actually priced into the plan at the beginning. So that large whole life premium you're paying includes the future dividends that you're going to earn. And the tool that the insurance company has to ensure that they don't have to charge too much is that the dividend in the future is not guaranteed. And if they, the pricing assumptions do not materialize, okay, so if experience is not according to what was assumed when we priced it as actuaries, we can actually lower the dividend. If experience is better, we can raise the dividend. I think it's common for me to see this, that for someone same age, same sex, same risk profile for a term policy is let's say X. And for a uh, participating is typically nine to 10 X, right? That's X, typically yeah. uh, how I've seen most policies. So in this nine to 10 X, what is included in that? What is baked in? We've talked about all the different assumptions and the liabilities anything more is baked into it. Okay. No, I think it's, I mean, the largest part of that would be the future death claim. You know, when we look at the difference between term and whole life, and, and you're, you're right on that difference, I generally quote is about 10 times the price. It's because if you look at a term 10 plan, sold, or even a term 20, sold to a healthy individual, someone who has to pass the underwriting, the risk of them dying in the next 20 years is very low. So we do put a cost on that, but it is a very low claims cost um, when you look at an entire block of business. Whereas when you look at a whole life block, you know, and we're, we're pricing, assuming we're selling thousands or tens of thousands of these policies. That's the only way this works. It's the law of large numbers. So um, when we look at a whole life block, we're assuming a good percentage of those cases will result in a claim in the future. So the big difference is, is one is, is like paying down a mortgage, a whole life plan. You know, someone is actually paying for an asset and that asset is either the cash value or the future death benefit. Whereas with term, we can charge a lot less because there are going to be very few claims because those would be considered premature deaths deaths before life expectancy. And the likelihood of those is much, much lower. So let me ask you this because you've brought it up twice. Um, and I've always heard, and I, and I don't know if this statistic is true or not, that the vast majority of term life are not claimed because people typically will 
uh, not pay their term after a certain age. So I think it was like something like 50 or 55. So they pay until that time. Then they consider themselves all debt are cleared. They consider themselves self-insured. So they, they don't buy life insurance anymore or they don't continue their policy. And so typically after a certain age, and you'll tell me what that age is average. So after that, they don't buy policies anymore. So the vast majority of term life policies are not paid out. Those that are paid out are those who have unfortunately premature death. Whereas those who have participating life, because it's through their entire life, they pay out 100% unless they don't pay their premiums, which would be something that can happen. So the statistics that I've heard is that uh, about 1% of term life actually gets paid out versus 100% of participating life gets paid out. I don't know if those numbers are true or not, and you can correct me, but I'm assuming that the, the, the general idea is right. The general idea is definitely right. I mean, definitely not 100% of permanent cases are paid out because some people will take the cash value. So they never actually get to um, you know, the point of a death claim. Uh, and on the term side, but it, but it would be on permanent, it would be a very high percentage. That's the reason people are buying the plan. Um, on, on the term there's a completely different reason they're buying it. They're generally buying it to protect um, temporary interests. So for example, while their children are dependent and it would be you know, a, a devastating loss to the family to lose their future income or if there's a large mortgage. So people are interested in protecting that, but only for a short period of time. So I think the age you mentioned is probably about right in the, you know, when someone hits their fifties, generally, they hope their mortgage is paid off, their children are starting to become independent, they see less of a need for that large amount of term insurance they may have bought, and maybe now see a different need for a permanent insurance plan. The other thing is, we have to remember people will buy term insurance for various terms, and they should be buying it for the term that they believe they need that coverage. So if they have a temporary need for 10 years, buy term 10. If they think you know they've just had a newborn baby, they should probably be looking at a term 20 or term 25 instead. Because the big problem is when that term policy renews at year 10, let's say, the, the premium jumps up about six or seven times. So very few people want to pay that higher rate for their term insurance. And I think that's what sometimes people don't understand. They think they'll buy temporary insurance, the cheapest one possible, but it may not actually meet their needs. You also mentioned something that I find interesting, and, and I've seen it too. Uh, people who buy term, and then they realize, oh my God, I need permanent life. And they need that in the later years of their life, not in the earlier years. So someone buy term until they're 45, 50, and now they realize they have a, a large deemed disposition tax bill that's going to come when they die, and they now see a, a huge tax liability uh, in the future. So just from a statistical perspective, you know, what, are the, what is the percentage of people who thought they only need term and then at some point says, oh, I need something more than term and switch to a perm or gets a new perm later? Do you have any sort of at the top of your head, what is that percentage? I don't really know the percentage, but I guess what the way I would look at it is the way term is built is there is an automatic conversion feature. So it's sort of like a lifestyle product. It meets your lifestyle as your lifestyle changes. And I, I would always advise people, the most important thing is when you're young and you've got dependent children um, and you have anyone depending on your continued you know, income to the family, it's really important to cover that amount and not worry about the tax bill in the future. Like don't sacrifice buying a million dollar term plan because you'd rather buy a hundred thousand of permanent later on in life. It's really important from an insurance perspective to cover the need first. Then later on, you have the ability to convert that term plan. And what I mean by convert is you can actually purchase a permanent plan now without undergoing another medical. So this is the way we've designed term is that it, it does sort of meet your lifestyle needs when you're younger and you have dependents and you probably have a lower income. And so then it 
as you transition into the next stage of life, when you're starting to look more at estate planning, you could actually just convert that term into a permanent plan. So I, I, that's another very interesting point. So the first point that you've made, I think everybody should listen and should really assimilate is when you buy the term to meet your financial goal, buy what you need, what your needs are, not based on what you can pay. So in the term, if you need a million, you buy a million, don't buy a hundred or permanent life just because you cannot afford a million of permanent life. You should buy the 1 million of term. That's what you're saying. And I absolutely agree. Make sure you meet your financial needs. But the second one is, okay, so there's a term, there's a convertible rider inside that term that whenever you want to convert to a, a permanent life, there is no need for a renewed physical. Correct. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. As far as I know, pretty much every term plan carries that feature. It's built in. You don't have to buy it optionally. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. So now let's jump to the next question. So we know why uh, permanent life costs X, Y, Z. We know that it's about nine to 10 times, nine to 10 X, the, the price of the, of the term. So now we talked about dividends. You mentioned earlier dividends. When you buy that permanent life insurance, the, the, premium, the premium also takes into account the, the dividend payout for that policy and the assumptions are made. So how is the dividend determined each year? Let's dive a little bit into that. Okay, good. So let's back up again to how the plan is structured and priced. So um, I know you're familiar with these types of plans and you know that a par whole life plan actually has some guaranteed values in it, correct? So there are some guaranteed cash values that are contractual in the plan. And there's also a guaranteed death benefit. So as long as you pay the annual premium, those are completely guaranteed. And that means if, let's say tomorrow, the company said, we're never paying dividends again, or we can't pay a dividend, you still have those contractual values in your contract. So those are all priced at very conservative assumptions, okay? So, you know, just to give you an example, if, if I was a pricing actuary today, and I felt that, you know, I could pretty much feel very confident that the insurance company can make three to 4% per year on their investments. And I'm pretty confident that if I used, uh, you know, a mortality table that was in effect 15, 20 years ago when life expectancy was even lower, which meant we would pay claims sooner, and I used that, I would be able to price those guaranteed values into my plan. So those are my conserved assumptions, conservative assumptions that I use to price the guaranteed part of the whole life plan. Now I come up with a set of best estimate assumptions, okay? Based on everything I know about today and, and projections for the future, um, the most current mortality tables, the most current economic outlook, the current expenses and taxes that the company is, is subject to, if I use these, I can see that I can actually provide a refund to my clients in the future because I've charged them a premium rate for a very, very conservative plan. So that's where the dividend comes in. So we have an expectation of what the dividend will be in all future years at the point of pricing. If our best estimate assumptions come true. Now, every year or every couple of years, the insurance company undertakes what we call a dividend equity study. And they will actually look at the experience of the um, participating account. So I'm just going to pause and explain what the participating account is. Every insurance company that sells par whole life insurance puts, has to establish a separate par account. And they invest all of the premium dollars that come in for par whole life in this account. They pay all the death claims from that account. They pay out cash values to policyholders who lapse their policies. Um, they also pay out the policy loans from that account and they pay expenses and taxes from that account. So they can really isolate the experience of this participating whole life block of customers. And then they can really assess how has the participating account done compared to what we projected when 
policies were originally purchased, okay? Now, obviously you have to do this block by block, okay? There's, um, we would group policyholders based maybe on the year that they purchased or, you know, something like that. We can't just lump them all together. But that helps to determine how the dividend um, may be paid in that year. So let's say our assumptions are pretty much in line with, with what, or our experience are, is in line with the assumptions we made when pricing. There's likely no change in the dividend for that year, okay? Um, but let's say, as, as has happened over the last 10 years, we're in a sustained low interest rate environment until recently. We see the investment returns on the PAR account are very low, lower than what we've anticipated. Then we will start to see action on the dividend. And in the last 10 years, we have seen the dividend scale interest rate come down about a full percentage point. And we have seen most policyholders see reductions in their dividends over that period of time. It's important that I also explain that the dividend scale interest rate is really just a notional value. And it represents a smoothing of the investment returns in the PAR account over the last few years, okay? There could be big fluctuations in the actual return on the PAR account, but the goal with whole life is to smooth out the performance and not have big variations in the dividend scale interest rate from year to year. And I think that's what creates this dividend different asset class because people can rely on the fact that you know, generally a, a dividend is going to get paid. It might be lower. It might be a little bit higher. It may be the same as projected, but it's not going to wildly fluctuate like the stock market may. Does that help? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So now that you've kind of dissect that a little bit, so let me ask, because for most people, an insurance policy, I sign this agreement with this carrier, I give you my money, and then it goes into this black box. And, and now we're unpeeling that black box a little bit slowly. So, you know, in this PAR account that you mentioned, typically, you know, what do these carriers invest in? Do they invest in a lot of fixed asset? Is it 70-30 type of of portfolio or do they invest in stocks and bonds and and other alternative what is typically the philosophy i'm assuming that the philosophy is more conservative uh, we want capital uh, preservation because we have a liability to to fulfill in future years so we can't be cowboys about this so typically what is the mix in this type of investment does it include futures does it include options does it include derivatives just give it a little a little a little sense of what's behind this black box Okay, really good question. And I'm actually referring to one of the company's <laughs> PAR guide right now. So you are right. It is, it is a fairly conservative mix of assets. There's a, uh, the, the asset classes that they invest in are bonds, primarily Canadian securities, uh, a lot of government and corporate bonds, you know, high quality ones. There are also private placements. Okay, so the investment departments of these companies will seek out uh, good uh, private placements. And that may really depend on the size of the company. Like a very large company would be going after large private placements. A smaller company may actually be able to access some smaller deals. And, and these could be, you know, very lucrative, very, very safe, um, but, but provide good returns. There's also real estate and commercial mortgages. Some companies will even invest in their own real estate, their own head office real estate. So it's, you know, very solid in terms of uh, the returns. Um, and then there are definitely equities as well. But if I look at the breakdown here, it's 60% uh, fixed income and 25% of real estate and equity combined. Uh, some of the other assets may just be cash and also policy loans. You know, they can be an asset within the participating fund as well. Thank you very much for showing us the what's behind the curtain, Dr. Oz, or, or uh, Magician Oz. So that's, that's good to know. And it's also good to know that there are really smart people looking at this, right? It's uh, people who are 
astute in uh, portfolio management and investment that's looking after the company so that the company doesn't default <laughs> if I have my policy with them. So that's good to know. We talked a little bit about the dividends in the sense that, that not 100% of my premium actually gets invested. So let's just say I bought a policy that is worth 35000 on a yearly basis. So my, my yearly premium is 35000 how is that 35000 allocated? How much is being put in that par account to invest? How much is being to service that policy uh, to make sure that my policy is enforced and, and doesn't collapse? So, or, or, and how much is, is spent on paying different administrative costs? How does that work a little bit? That, that's a bit of a tough question, but I'll try to tackle it as well as I can. The premium that's paid for a life insurance policy will will go into the par account, but um, it will have a share of expenses like the corporate expenses deducted from it. There's all, right off the top the premium tax, uh, anywhere from two to four percent in Canada, depending on on the province. There's also, I guess, the biggest part of the the premium will go towards a reserve. Okay, so the reserve. Uh, that an insurance company sets up is essentially a fund that it needs to grow over time so that it can meet its obligation for that particular policy, okay? So that really is the asset or the contribution that you have made to the participating fund, okay? So in, in a sense, a way to look at it as if, if, um, we expect someone on average to pass away at age 85 and they're currently age 55, um, you know, very simplistically, and I'm not lo looking at cash values or anything else here. What is the amount the insurance company needs to hold today as a reserve so that it will grow to the amount and be that death benefit amount at age 85? Okay, so it, it also needs to be enough so that each year it will release a little bit to cover expenses, um, you know, whether they're uh, in head office commission uh, uh, expenses or expenses that have to be paid to the advisor, um, there's annual taxes, and so on and so forth. So it's really hard to break that down. Where does that 35000 of premium go? But that is really the amount on which the dividend is based. So the reserve value that you represent as part of the PAR account is the larger it is, the larger your dividend payout will be. So let me understand this a little bit and summarize it. So I'm paying 35000 a year premium to this policy. Uh, a separate amount is put into this reserve account. And the dividend that we talked about, let's just say 6%. Let's just round out the number. The dividend is 6%. The 6% is not on the 35,000, correct? correct? The 6% is on the amount of the reserve that is being put aside. So typically, uh, or maybe not typically, but you know, can you give us a certain sense of, is it is it 70% of that 35? Is it 90%? Is it 50%? Like, What's an average number that a consumer can think, okay, well, if I'm putting 35000 into this policy this year and I'm expecting a 6% dividend because that's what the company has announced, is, is it on 30000 Is it on 25000 What is that amount? Or is that, does that change year to year? Yeah, so I think you've raised something very interesting. And I think this is where a lot of confusion occurs with dividends under insurance policies. If we know that the company is currently crediting 6% dividend scale interest rate, you can't take that 6% and figure out what your dividend is for the year. As I mentioned earlier, that's a notional value. And it's really a relative value. It lets us determine if, you know, next year the company says they're still using 6%, then dividends are pretty much unchanged. If they say dividends are now, you know, the dividend scale interest rate is six and a quarter, they've gone up. But it is, it is not a dividend yield the way you might calculate dividend yield when a stock pays a dividend, okay? It, it, is, it is definitely confusing and it is not a return. And I think what's important, the way I would look at it is not 
you know, what is the dividend interest rate? And that's the return I'm getting. I would go and look at what is the internal rate of return in the future, okay, of the cash value I'm being promised at a certain age or the death benefit that my beneficiaries are being promised at, a, let's say, at life expectancy, okay? So we really never really know today what the rate of return is on an insurance plan. And that 6% dividend interest rate is definitely not our rate of return. It is just one factor that works into the values that we get in the future, because the higher the dividend interest rate, the higher the dividend, the higher our cash value, and the higher our eventual death benefit. So we will have a higher internal rate of return, but we can't attach it to that 6% dividend interest rate. That is very interesting because, you know, I think, like you say, the misconception is that the, the insurance company is telling me 6%, therefore I'm raking a yield of 6%. You're saying, no, no, that's not how it works. So here's the question that I'm sure people will ask. Well, you know what? If I'm buying XYZ dividend stock and that dividend stock has a capital gain and, I'm, and it's going up, plus I get a 3% dividend, I know how much I'm getting with this particular stock. And I'm buying this insurance policy, they tell me 6%, but I don't actually get 6%. How confident am I that this insurance policy will actually pay up? It's, it's such a black box. Why should I even believe it, right? I'm sure that question will come because as you say, there's so many factors. So how do I know what I'm getting? And the next question is, you know, when I bought my policy, there's an illustration. That illustration tells me, Vu, by 50, you should get this. By 55, you should get this. By 65, you should get this. At time of death, this is what we expect. So that's an illustration with several assumptions baked in. So how often should I get a renew of that illustration to, to see where I what's the update for today? How What would you recommend? Okay. Um, so yeah, it's good you've raised the point of the illustration. I mean, at the point of sale, that's really your representation of how this uh, insurance plan that you've just purchased will perform. And at that point in time, I would actually want to see, and I would ask the advisor if they're not showing it, what is the internal rate of return on this plan um, at various ages? And then you can do a better comparison with other investments that are available out there. Now you've compared it to the dividend yield on stocks. There's no guarantees there either. And in fact, there's probably a lot more volatility particularly when you're looking at individual stocks, right? So um, with an insurance company, if you look at their investment mandate under the PAR account, you look at the history of what they've paid. And we've got over 150 years of history with some of the insurance companies in Canada. And you can see how their dividend scale interest rate has tracked against the history of the stock market. And you can see that it is much, much smoother than the ups and downs in the stock market. Okay, so if I go back to your question about the illustration, I would say, you know, pretty much every time the dividend scale interest rate changes, I would want to know, well, what does my projection look like now? How much has my dividend changed? What does my cash value look like at age 75 now, which is when I might want to start borrowing against it? What does my death benefit now look like at age 85? Is it still enough to cover off my tax bill? Because that's why I put this in place, okay? But the reason you bought a whole life plan to start with is because the projected long-term values and the internal rate of return on an after-tax basis was very attractive. There was less volatility compared to some of, you know, your other investments. You've diversified, you know, as we talked about at the beginning, you know, on, on the whole, it still makes sense. And you're willing to take that risk that the dividend may go up, it may go down, and over time, the values could change. So I think this is a good segue to talk a little bit about, okay, so I'm buying this policy. I've been shown an illustration. I want to understand the, the IRR, internal rate of return. And I'm being showed multiple policies, right? I'm being showed one from carrier A, carrier B, carrier Z. What should I look for when I compare these plans? 
again, I would look at the future values, okay, and how I would have them on a spreadsheet, just see how do they compare if, I, if I'm looking at three or four different companies for the same premium dollar, what do the future uh, values look like? What can I buy in terms of death benefit today? And how does that grow in the future? Um, and what does that grow in terms of cash value as well? Because you want to do it apples to apples. You may not start with the same death benefit for each company. So you want to start with one premium amount. Like in your case, you mentioned 35000 a year. So I would want to see illustrations that show me what is the death benefit today and what does it grow to in the future. I'd want to see the internal rate of return for each of those companies. The next thing I would then ask is, what do these projections look like if we assume that the dividend scale interest rate is 1% less than it is today and 2% less than it is today? And what you'll see is that some companies, you know, their future values change, but they don't change as much as other companies. So that might be one thing you really do want to look at is that there's less sensitivity to the future values um, when you change the dividend scale interest rate going forward. Another thing I would look at is I would want to know what the investment philosophy is of the company. I would also want to see their dividend history, maybe look at their solvency as well, although most companies in Canada are, are very, very solvent. And yeah, I think, I think that those are the key factors that I would look at. Amazing. So those are really good factors to look for. I've been told, and this is mainly very American type of philosophy, to look at mutual versus non-mutual uh, companies. Does that factor into your decision? Does it help? Does it not help? Yeah, definitely. I, I would definitely look at that because at one time, all of the uh, insurance companies in Canada were mutuals. And so, you know, the, the idea was that the management was working for you, the policyholder, the par policyholder, um, and decisions would be made on that basis. Uh, then many of them became stock companies. So now there's two people to look after or two different interests to look after. But they, the law has protected par policyholders because, you know, if there are profits in the par account, by law, majority of them have to go to par policyholders. In fact, it's it's over 90%. And I think it only varies depending on the size of the company. Um, but the one nice thing, if you are still able to purchase from a mutual company in Canada, is that if they were to become a stock company in the future, there may be additional um, benefits, um, you know, a share in the surplus before they become a stock company. Um, and maybe just an overall sense that, you know, it's the par policyholders who are the key stakeholders of the company and not shareholders who may have different interests. Should that decision be weighted more? Like if I have two policies that are just, let's say, same apples to apples and one is a mutual and one is a stock, does that weigh a lot? Or would you say maybe the bigger company, which is the stock company typically, uh, has better track record, has better dividend rates, has a, a better history, but it's not a mutual. So how would you take that into consideration? Is the mutual a very, very important element? or And it's an element, but not that important. Yeah, I, I think it really depends on a case-by-case -case basis, you know, depending on how large the policy is. Um, if it's for a very young person and it's, you know, apples to apples the same, you may see that, you know, in the future, this company may become a stock company. There may be more benefit there for them. But, you know, on balance, I, I don't know if I would favor, always favor a mutual over a, a stock company. Stock company, you know, has other advantages, uh, better access to capital markets and so on. Perfect. Perfect. That, that answers that question very well. We also talked about the illustration is very important. Uh, you talked about that and get a sensitivity analysis of, you know, what it would look like at minus 1% and what it would be at minus 2%. Let's sort of finish this conversation uh, on accountability of, of the company. What did you mean by that? Because in our discussion, you mentioned that. So explain to the audience what you meant by that and what should be looking at. So again, I think the accountability is the fact that, you know, the company does keep a separate par account 
for all of these policyholders. It, it cannot just be mixed with the general funds of the company. And I think, you know, maybe an example of that is if, if everything was mixed together, the company might find a way to push more of the operating expenses onto the participating policyholders' backs. But this way, by isolating, you know, the funds and the experience for the PAR policyholders alone, it, it ensures that, you know, we get to um, the whole reason why people buy participating whole life. It's because you participate in the profits of the company. And you want to participate on the basis that you contributed to it, not on the basis of the entire company where they've got term policyholders and universal life policyholders and, you know, and other businesses that don't even involve insurance. So um, that, that is, I think, a big part of the accountability, having the PAR account, and then definitely, you know, just having the rigor around ensuring that PAR policyholders do receive, you know, 90% plus of the profits in that fund. They cannot be siphoned off into other parts of the company. Wonderful. Uh, so that, that in a way is to, I, I, in fact, protect the customer and the policyholders, right? Correct. To make sure to make sure that money, money is not siphoned away to other accounts. Correct. So you know what, uh, Banasha, there's way too much to talk about. Uh, about uh, permanent life insurance. I think we will have to invite you back for a separate podcast to really tie this up and, and tie it with a nice bow. But I want, to, I want to finish this conversation in the last two minutes, just to summarize, because we, we've gone through a lot of technical stuff. And I think people will probably take a long time to listen to this three, four times before they actually get the technical stuff. But I want to from your perspective, from an actuary perspective, you know, what are the pros of permanent life insurance? And you've mentioned it already. I just want to take the time to summarize it. Why for you, even as an actuary, is that such a good asset to diversify? In? Again, it, it's got to be suitable um, under the scenario. But what I do like about participating whole life is over the long run, this is a plan that you buy for the long term. This is not something you buy, you know, and think you might hold for 20 years and might get out of it. Um, you really do need to consider this because it's, it's a large premium. But if you stick this out, the cash values and the death benefits of the future will probably be higher than anything else you can buy in terms of insurance on the market. Now, obviously, you can buy universal life. And if you do very well on the investments, then that may match this. But the fact that, you know, your hands off, you can let the insurance company handle the investments. You've got, as you mentioned, you know, professionals managing those investments. The expenses to manage those investments are very, very small compared to, you know, your ability to access that type of expertise. Um, you're getting it at a very low cost. For the most part, the cash values are growing uh, on a tax deferred basis. So there's a lot of compounding available there. Um, and it's just very suitable in, you know, under a lot of different scenarios. I, I just like the idea that, you know, if, if it makes sense and you want to leave money as a legacy or you want to cover estate taxes, you want your insurance amount to go up over time. And that's what the dividend allows. As long as you use your dividend to purchase more insurance. Over time, you know, the nice thing is this keeps pace with inflation in a sense, because it does increase over time. So there's a lot of nice factors available with this type of plan. Um, and so that's why I like, I like it a lot. And, you know, again, if it's suitable for a particular client, um, I will propose this type of plan. So let's maybe balance it out a little bit with maybe one last question. Uh, in what scenario or in what client would you say, this is not suitable for you? This is, this is not something I would recommend because of X, Y, Z reasons. What are those scenarios and what are those X, Y, Z reasons? Okay. Um, I mean, certainly it often boils down to price point. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, sometimes people feel, you know, I can afford this much on insurance. I don't like the idea of buying term because it's like renting. I'm throwing away my money. I don't get anything back if, you know, if I, if I never end up claiming under the insurance. I would say, you know, it, it may be too expensive for some people. 
when they really need a much higher amount of coverage and should be looking at term. Um, I would also not recommend it where someone is not sure that they can commit to the premium going forward. Um, and that's why I tell people, take your time and think about this. Uh, I also often ensure that they purchase a limited pay whole life plan. I don't like um, having people pay for their insurance for the rest of their lives when they're in their 90s and they're still paying the premium. Oh, it's God, not no. Something you want. I know it's more expensive if you buy a 10 pay or a 20 pay, yeah. but we can generally see that, okay, over the next 10 or 20 years, I think I can afford this much, setting it aside to build an asset, because that's what you're doing. So, you know, those are, it's generally boils down to price and affordability. There is value there, that's for sure. But that doesn't mean it's right for everyone, because maybe they can't afford it. Uh, and they have to be realistic about that. Got it. So listen, I want to be fair. Uh, and so uh, we can't, talk everything about insurance in one episode and there's way too much to talk about. So I would love to invite you back at some point and uh, pick your brain even more. Uh, but for now, I think we will end it here. But before we end, I always ask, you know, last, last question. Uh, if there's something burning on your chest that you must tell my audience right now, what would that one thing be? Do your homework, educate yourself. That's really the bottom line. Education is empowerment. And I always believe um, that you really shouldn't buy anything until you completely understand it. And this type of plan in particular, talking about par whole life insurance, it takes a lot to understand it. But, you know, if, if you do understand it and you understand the risks and the pros and the cons, and you go through a lot of the things we talked about today in this podcast, I think then you can make a very educated decision as to whether it's right for you or not. So that's sort of, you know, what I tell all clients is, you know, educate yourself because that's empowerment. Education is empowerment. Please remember that. And please, please, please don't let anybody tell you that this product is not right for you. That product is not right for you when that particular person do not understand. Always do your own homework and always do your own due diligence. Understand the scenario, understand the solution, and then make a decision. Please do not fall into dogma and cookie cutter solutions that do not apply to you. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope that you have enjoyed this episode. And if you have, please share it with your friends, your colleagues, your cats and your dogs. To leave me feedback or any comments, please email me at hmfhd2020 at gmail.com. How is my financial health doc podcast is hosted by Dr. Vukit Tran. Dr. Tran is a physician with a special interest in personal financial security and wealth education. Dr. Tran does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through this financial podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. Please confer with your advisor, lawyer, or accountant for specific advice. <laughs>